0: Welcome to the SaaS Sales Performance Podcast, the show for anyone wanting to be on the cutting edge of SaaS tech sales. We provide the tools you need to take advantage of the rapidly changing sales environment. We bring you the leading experts on the front lines of SaaS sales and distill down our famous masterclasses into bite sized practical tips. Your hosts will be Ash Alley and Matt Milligan. And on this podcast, we will be transforming your ability to sell more and smash your targets.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the SaaS Sales Performers Podcast. And for those that have been following the show for some time, uh, you'll be well aware that we've had some amazing SaaS leaders from the likes of Zoom, Gong, some of the biggest, fastest growing organizations of the last decade, come on here to talk about the challenges of building go-to-market and building revenue functions. Some of the feedback that we oftentimes get is that there's a lot of content available to early stage teams on the journey from, say, zero to a million in recurring revenue. And then there's also a ton of documentation and content out there for the really big winners. So some of those names that I mentioned just a moment ago. Today's guest is uniquely positioned to bring some insights from that bit in the middle, that, that journey from say 1 to 20 or 50, which is arguably what many of our listeners are looking to inform and educate themselves around. Today's guest is uniquely positioned because he is the operating partner and chief platform officer at Notion Capital. For those who aren't familiar with Notion, Notion our leading European venture capital firm. Today's guest has built his entire career working in revenue teams, both in sales and marketing, and has helped, I think at this point, Stephen, over 80 founders that you guys have now backed. Yeah, when us across our very early stage fund and our core fund to probably 150 companies, all SaaS, all business software. I mean, the definition of what is and isn't SaaS is fast changing, but my career going back to 2000 is pretty much all SaaS. And I think that focus and concentration on, it, on an individual business thesis, but looking at it very much from an operational mindset, which is what we do, and also looking at it with a real intent to be supportive and helpful in and help portfolio companies to overcome exactly the challenge you're talking about. I had the joy of doing that a years in Motion Capital. Amazing. And I mean, Stephen, super delighted to have you on the show. And I know you and I have been going back and forth trying to schedule a date in both of our busy schedules for this. Really pleased that we can make it happen. Welcome to the show. And, you know, I always like to start off, I've given a bit of context there on your journey. But for the listeners who are mostly chief revenue officers, VPs, oftentimes leading teams on the front line with founders, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a bit of context on you know yourself and your journey so far and also how Notion came to be and, and the great work you've been doing. Yeah, thank you. So I've been working in enterprise software or well, business to business technology for, gosh, over 30 years. Founded a my own startup age 25, boom and bust. I wasn't even that boom, a mini kind of like clap maybe. <laughs> Worked in a couple of startups in the early 90s. I was very fortunate. I got a very interesting role at Oracle. I was there for about eight years. The business was growing very fast. I was running European marketing for Oracle. I started as a salesman, funnily enough, and then I ended up running marketing for our direct sales business. And then I got a phone call from a headhunter to go and join a, a company I'd never heard of called Message Labs. These things you look back on in hindsight, and you kind of appreciate just how extraordinary that was. So that business was founded in late 99, early 2000s, one of the world's first SaaS not that we knew that it was called SaaS uh, at the time. But our business grew from zero to 150 million plus in recurring revenue in eight years. But that's still crazy, right? And when it was acquired by Symantec for seven or $800 million in 2008, it was the second biggest SaaS company in the world. I kind never of like Beggars belief when you think of that now. And I had the kind of privilege of working there for about three years in the middle of running marketing. I went off and did my own thing for quite a while doing kind of go-to-market strategy work predominantly. And then uh, I picked up a few clients within the... The Notion portfolio. And the next thing I knew, I ended up doing what I was doing outside, doing at Notion. And, you know, when I think about it, so I'm just coming up to eight years, it'll be eight years in January. I, without that, have learned so much more in those eight years than I did in the previous 18. And actually, I'd say it kind of accelerates as well because you get this amazing forcing mechanism in venture, which is especially when you've got the kind of approach we have. It's like we're setting out our soul to be the best SaaS investor. We're all ex operators and we add value. So increasingly, you get founders, Choose us because of that then you have to up your game and then they get better so I, I honestly i think i've learned so much even in the last two years more than i've learned in the previous six at, at notion get to work with some extraordinary founders have a great team at notion and our platform team who support our portfolio companies i'd boil it down to two fundamental things when and how to grow who when to hire and fire because it all comes down to people and growth and i know that's dramatic oversimplification but frankly that's what matters so yeah it's been a blast we're investing our fifth venture fund for a bit of context it's 300 million euros we're a London based fund investing across Europe predominantly at series A we do six or seven series A investments a year first checks would be five to ten million we have a very very active very early stage investment strategy as well doing very regular small kind of angel size checks makes for an interesting challenge the two philosophies you shared there Stephen are really interesting before we dive into today's topic around was it how and when to grow and then who and when to hire and fire I like things that rhyme But it's true. I think the single most important thing I'd say I've learned or come to appreciate working with founders is that building a SaaS company is not a continuum. It's not a linear process where I found and I exit. And you made a really interesting point, right? There are tens of thousands of early stage companies founded every year. There are handfuls of companies that achieve real scale. And we know a lot about those two things, but we don't know a lot about the be in the middle, which is, okay, how do we transition from that crazy, chaotic kind of start phase to a... Snowflake-like, extraordinary success. And I think one of the biggest learnings on that journey has been to understand that actually much of success is built upon founders and companies realizing that it is far more of a step function than a linear process. And what I mean by that, the things that are important at each stage, how you grow, the people you hire are quite fundamentally different as the company grows. And if you think about just the simplicity of thinking about it from just an organization perspective. The challenge of running a business with 10 people versus a challenge of running a company with 100 people or 500 people or 1,000 people, it doesn't take a lot to realize that these are fundamentally different organizations led by fundamentally different people doing fundamentally different things. And honestly, I do think, not if, even when the vision is still the same, you know, I set out to do something extraordinary and I'm still doing something extraordinary. You mentioned, you know, we talk about those amazing success stories. You know, We looked at the top 30 SaaS IPOs in 2020 and 2021, and in 25 out of 30 cases, the founding CEO is still in situ two to three years after the IPO. So there is an extraordinary correlation between exceptional founders who have a vision. But when you look at teams that they're running at that stage, there's nobody who's there at this stage. That's an incredible stat because you oftentimes hear about founders exiting before the kind of business exits. But for those, those outlier cases, for it to be the case that the founder under, manages to kind of reinvent themselves and, and evolve through those stages is really impressive. And it's also because this is what they've realized that this is what they're on the planet to do. And you could almost imagine these people doing that job for the rest of their life, because it, it's more than a, a job. It's a fundamental kind of, you know, the world needs to conform to the way I think about how the world should be. And so these are extreme cases, right? Absolutely extreme cases. I just put the, in that into context. We did some analysis of this challenge, which is to say, what is the problem? of a SaaS and cloud company achieving that kind of outcome. And so we looked at a cohort of SaaS and cloud companies going back to the beginning of 2005. And it was about 140,000 companies of which about a third said they're VC backed was about 40,000 companies. And about a third of those raised more than 3 million. It's about just over 13,000 companies. And of those 13,000 companies, we then tracked them through to what can we see outcomes? Now, what we saw was that there were about 243, 243 Companies from the 13,000 and the 40,000 and the 130,000 who achieved one of three things either 100 million in revenue, a billion dollar acquisition or a billion dollar plus IPO. But when you boil it down and say okay, what about just those companies that hit 100 million in revenue? Cuz hitting 100 million in revenue in less than 10 years is really what venture is predicated on. It's the strongest single correlation with enterprise value. It's actually 108 companies. 108 companies out of that total 140,000 companies that hit 100 million in revenue almost. More in less than in 10 years or less I could go on about that but it's fascinating wow. so then you've got to start to think about well okay that's less than 1% of the VC backed companies that raise more than 3 million so what happens to the 99 and this isn't the 99% of companies that never raised any money or just raised an angel now, this is a 99% of the companies that raise a decent amount of caps what happens to them which goes to what, your question what is success in that transition from 2 to 3 million to 30 to 40 million built upon yeah and that it's just fascinating stats, Stephen. Really, really interesting data. We see so many companies at that stage in the market today who are trying to break through. They're trying to, I think in the venture world, you guys call it escape velocity, right? So let's think about the kind of step framework that you started describing there. You know, we. I'm a SaaS founder. You know, we get to, to one to, to two million. We're starting to now enter the realms of that next phase. Walk us through some of the patterns that you start to see. What do those shifts start to look like once you get that initial milestone? I think the first thing to start with is to say failure is kind of baked in, right, in the zero to one and, and to certainly send the one to three million. And you, you'd expect that because there are lots of great reasons. I founded businesses which never get past that. So, right, you know, and it's not because I, I didn't have the energy or the drive. It just wasn't a very good idea. And so there is failure. And of course, I think there are common mistakes there. And, and invariably, a company is just trying to grow before they're ready. But if we let's assume we get through that kind of crazy, chaotic, what we call the start stage, which is we really think about it zero to one and one to three million. But let's say we've got our three million. So we've identified a core set of customers that generalize to a very large market. They're monetizing. We've got engaged customers. They're willing to advocate for us. And we're kind of figuring out a model that allows me us to win more customers. Whether that's an enterprise sales situation, we're going beyond be on founder-led sales, or whether it's in some kind of PLG kind of motion, it's starting to work. Here's the thing, is that the things that you did in that zero to one and one to three million that made you successful, they won't just not make you successful at three to 10, they'll make you unsuccessful because if you're moving from a period of a group of very high performing generalists with everybody kind of sitting around that kitchen table doing everything to a period of intense specialization and you know you're moving a chaos to an to an order and you're moving from a a kind of a a pure discovery because discovery obviously carries on to being structure and that word repeatability and what we see there is the starting point is the people you know some can go through that phase we call it start and then build and then scale so start is zero to one one to three build is three to ten ten to thirty and then scale is thirty plus some people can naturally transition through that but a lot of people can't and so I'd characterize the three to 10 as kind of like we're building an evolving go to market model, specialists replacing generalists and establishing repeatability across demand creation, sales conversion, revenue realization. And then at 10 to 30, it's kind of codifying that, you know, so structuring your own playbooks, having real documentation and definition around the entire customer lifecycle, highly repeatable processes. And by that, meaning standard input, standard process, standard outcomes, robust systems and, and data. And though those are things that are really common um, patterns that we see in the companies where they just go into a very, very different kind of yeah, shifting gears from chaos to order, if you like. We work a lot with an executive coach called Rachel Turner, who's the most extraordinary former founder turned exec coach. And she talks about this transition of going from fearless worry to considered architect. And when you think about it like that, well, those are fundamentally different kind of mindsets and philosophies. And then she then describes the kind of what we call the scale stage, the founder, the CEO becoming the wise monarch, which, you know, I, I like them. And they're very yeah. thought provoking in terms of the image that it creates. And that really encapsulates everything. And that's the step. And in particular, I think three to 10 million is the killing zone, right? Mm-hmm. Because if we assume we've built a product that customers actually are willing to buy and pay money for, the value is com- we're receiving is commensurate to the value. Of, it's bigger than the value they're getting. And the market's big. It's a failure. Of execution and it's a failure of ability to turn kind of creativity into repeatability. And I think that's a right shame, right? And then growth slows. And a different outcome can emerge. You can still have a great outcome at 10 million in revenue. I'd have been over the moon if the businesses I'd founded had achieved that. So don't get me wrong. Yeah, I'm not saying it's not great, but it's not what the game is about. And we kind of try to we're not all directed, but we're not overly directed in terms of the things you should do, because actually every company is different. But there are common principles, we think, that underpin the companies that transition through this phase rapidly. And there are very common mistakes. So, and again, not they don't make mistakes, right? make mistakes that are common to you, they are unique to you, I should say, not common to everyone. If I think back to the many of the previous guests we've had on the show, Stephen, there's been lots of those kind of common principles, which is if I've been there and made this mistake before, <laughs> then uh, it's a cheat code. If you can get ahead of that mistake and not make it again. I love the concepts of those archetypes, by the way, from a founder perspective, you know, the fearless warrior at the three to 10 stage. Something I'm curious about, I mean, I'm assuming you you must see quite a lot of founders that really struggle with that adjustment. How does that adjustment also take place within going back to the people point of who and when to hire and fire? How do you see that evolution happening within the revenue organizations? You know, we talk a lot about this transition from founder-led sales to scalable team-led sales. The average tenure of a a chief revenue officer at a Series A company, I think, is down to 16 months now. What do you put that down to? Is it this evolution? that the CRO is having to make is to be expected. If a company is growing super, super fast, then, you know, as chief revenue officer at an early stage to last more than two to three years, it's pretty damn good. And so, I mean, averages are like can be very misleading. And you should think about the deviation to that, of course. And there are exceptional people who can go all the way through. I think there's a couple of things that we see. So first off, as I mentioned, you have to get quite a top down to an atomic level in terms of process, in terms of the life cycle, right? How do we acquire a customer? How do we convert a customer? How do we convert a customer? we make them successful. So documenting that and being really detailed in terms of understanding that, there's a big part of the work for the founder to be doing because they know the customer, they know the market. And then broadly, hiring people who know how to execute that part of the process. And it is a very much moving from a generalist to a specialist kind of environment. That's the first thing. The second thing is actually, I don't want a founder to overthink the challenges. who I'm going to hire, much more than what do they need to achieve in the next one to two years because I hire and I so said like here's the job and we need to go from 3 to 10 million we've got all the resources in place we think we're on track to do that within like 12 to 16 months and you nail that I'm happy days I'll happily fully vest you and, and hire somebody else to take me onto the next stage so there's that focus that says hire people who can do what you need to be done that's the first thing be really clear about that not hiring a chief revenue officer per se that might be the title I end up giving them I'm hiring somebody to do A and B I think that's the uh, first thing I'd say. I think the second thing is beware people who turn up with the playbook that says, yeah, don't worry. I, I did this at a previous company and this is how we operate it and that's what I'm going to do. Oh, I mean, that just scares the living daylights out of us. It may well be true, right? But the assumption is it won't be. And actually, what we really like to see is like hiring sales and marketing and success leaders who've done the stage before, brings 10, 10 to 30. They love doing the stage. That's a really important distinction. But also, ideally, they've done it two, three, four different business models. You know, they've done it in enterprise space. They've done it in developer-led. They've done it in an open source business. They've done it in an indirect business. Now you get someone who comes and says, I don't know what the answers are, but I know the right questions to ask. And then we'll devise and develop a strategy that is unique to us. Because when you talk about those amazing companies like Snowflake or let's say Snick or Wiz, their model is different. They'll have done things along that journey which are not typical. And so avoid that labor reflex. And I think if you can try and do those two things, be really clear in terms of what, well, three, one, get specialized. Two, be really clear in terms of what the job is for like 12 to 24 months. And, and three is look for people who've got loads of hunger, loads of hustle, loads of experience within your phase, but a really open mind in terms of how to solve the problem. Maybe, maybe you can be more successful. Maybe you can de-risk the journey and the process you have a far, far better chance than just assuming what worked there will work here, or assuming that the people who got me from one to three will get me from three to 10, or 10 to 30. Super super great insights. Uh, It makes so much sense. And something you mentioned there that was really interesting as well, which I think is something that is often not discussed enough between founders and those commercial hires is thinking about the contractual setup and thinking about things like vesting periods. You you, You spoke about if you've got a really clear definition of what is the job, that you need them to do, it doesn't make sense to put that first leader hire on a <laughs> on a four-year vesting schedule. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting thought process. I mean, VC-backed startups have a, typically a two-year death clock running. I'm kind of kidding myself if I'm thinking any longer than that. So an interesting one discussion to have with you board and your investors. Yeah, absolutely. Just in that three to 10 stage, Stephen, it, it would be, I think, a miss if I, I didn't mention as well, you know, the evolution we've experienced in 2023. I mean, you and I are recording this at the back end of, of 2023. It's almost December uh, now. You know, the market environment that SaaS companies are operating in, particularly from a capital perspective, is, is very, very different to what it was 12, 24 months ago. What shift have you seen in terms of that emphasis on profitability and more efficient growth? Has that impacted the framework and, and the sort of principles for success? scarcity is a good thing, you know, and, and so it forces us to do less with more. It forces us to think, can we grow revenue and decouple it from headcount? Out, right? Because if I can't achieve a non-linear relationship between revenue and headcount, I mean, I'm a bit fucked long term. Personally, I think that's a good thing. And it means I want to be snowflake like companies that is going to be here for the next 20 to 30 years and spitting out billions in revenue. So when I zoom back down, I think what it can allow us to do is to be not cautious, but can maybe consider, say, if I want to unlock exponential growth in this three to 10 million period or lay the groundwork for it, you know, what would I do different? Well, I'd absolutely have clarity over my, I know who my best customers are, 100%, very, very focused on that. I know what the hottest segments are and I'm focused on the most important segments. That, that's number one. Number two is I know how they buy and how that life cycle works. Number three is I am obsessive about the data and the conversions all the way along that line. Right, so I, let's assume I've done that. How am I going to behave differently now? I haven't got a huge amount of capital. Well, I'm going to focus on marginal gains across the life cycle. I'm going to keep an eye on segmentation on my tab. I'm going to keep an eye on how conversions are happening, and I'm going to look for optimization along the life cycle. It says, now I've got green lights on acquisition, conversion, and revenue activation, and then I start to add incremental resources. And if I combine marginal grain gains on the life cycle, speed deals are going through conversion rates, size of the deals, and I can incrementally add resources, I can unlock exponential growth without a huge amount of capital. I think that could be really, really good. And I think that's the kind of thing that European founders are minded to. I think that's really exciting. I think there's another bigger issue, frankly, in terms of what's happening now in 23 and 24, which probably has a bigger impact than the availability of capital. And that's the indecisive customers. So Lead times across the board are slowing down and the sheer volume of, yeah, I'd like to buy, I'm not going to buy uh, because actually that fear of fucking up. I think that's real. Well, I don't think it's real. That's real. Now that has a bigger material effect and that it's tied into the same thing in terms of availability of capital and Recessionary environment and inflation that mean that people are less less likely to make decisions to invest in new technology unless you really really give them clarity and comfort that this is not going to bite them on the arse so i think that's a bigger issue frankly for founders to face up to and it's not just in enterprise software this is in life in general yeah i mean deal slippages for so many of the SaaS companies we work with here at U hubs is hearing that a lot particularly heading into q4 or in q4 it makes a ton of sense i would think urge everybody to read Matt Dixon's Jolt The Jolt Effect (laughs) It's a great book It's a really really good book and it it helps people to understand you know super sellers aren't environment aren't just objection handlers they're helping customers to buy by reducing their options taking risk off the table thinking about how they can establish trust and take away the fear of messing up so I, I really recommend people lean into that Great that's a great read second that so we spent quite a bit of time talking about the Fearless Warrior stage there Stephen I think you know I love that those three kind of principles of get specialized to be really clear on what, what's the job that you want that team to do. Then look for that profile of people that have done maybe this step just before at multiple types of companies. Thinking about then as you move from that 10 to 30, the founder is now trying to put on that considered architect hat. Help us understand some of the common principles of success and failure that you see once you got to 10. Well, I think it's much of the same thing. The 3 to 10, the 10 to 30, just kind of like a slightly different emphasis. So the 3 to 10 for us is definitely the beginning of the architecture phase right that's where it starts that's where the build phase and that's where the real that's the transitionary periods from chaotic startup to semi-professional well-run business and i think then at 10 million it's about you know productizing if you like it's about productizing the aspect to, of the business it's, it starts to get a lot more complex so i might be having to hire people who are managers of managers and, and so on and so forth but i think what i would really look at it is to say going back to what i was saying before right so i'm still obsessed about my customers. I know why and how you buy inside out. Right. I know how to acquire them at scale. I know how to convert them at scale. I know importantly how to make them successful at scale. I'm absolutely maniacal about data, but also increasing pipeline and, you know, standard inputs and outputs. You know, I've got process, I've got enablement, I've got a real investment in kind of productivity of, of people. And I think this is where kind of RevOps function really starts to come in. You know, I actually I think way earlier than this, but this is where it really starts coming into play. So, you know, there's lots of people who are in their annual planning cycle at the moment, hopefully coming towards the end of it. And you can imagine the scenario where, you know, the VC has said, right, you need to 2x or 3x, and the finance team have built the plan. I mean, that's a very dangerous situation as a founder to be in. What a RevOps function can do is allow you to say, well, okay, these are the resources we have. This is how the process is working. This is where the conversions are. This is what everything looks like across the life cycle. If we can optimize all the resources we have, this this is what we could achieve. This is the wrap-up period for the new headcount that we're going to require, that we've already got on coming on board. And this is now the gap that we will need to fill. And actually, we can probably get to 0.8 of that goal, but we can do it with confidence. And I think too many companies at this kind of stage let finance build the plan and realistically it's got to start from a bottom-up perspective of what works and what doesn't, what resources I have, what resources I get, when I'm going to get them, how I'm going to get speed, how am I going to get them? I'm empowered, how am I getting into a point where across the board everything is green lights and I can just keep adding incrementally to it? You know, I think that for us is I think codified all of that in a playbook. So while I say I don't want people with playbooks, I want you to build your own because when I go 10 to 30, I'm now operating in multiple different markets and segments. I'm operating in different countries potentially. That's not to say that you should just assume that because you've got product market fit in one segment or market, you've got it in another. That's another whole can of worms right there. But let's assume you've done your due diligence and you've got these things. So then you've got, you know, some real clarity over how yours go to market model works. And then it's about, you know, real hard nosed execution, turning that into something that is allowing you to start to push the boundaries to really fulfill your potential. It may be, again, different people, three to 10 and 10 to 30, not always, but quite often. But absolutely, when you get 30 to 40 million, it does change again. Maybe that's for another time. Yeah. super interesting and I, I think that the shout out and acknowledgement of RevOps role in that phase of growth is, is a really worthy one it does surprise me how many leadership teams I'll speak to who are in that 10 to 30 phase who can't actually articulate what the ramp up time is for a sales hire and you know when you just talk about it, oh shit we need to know that don't we I mean I think you know RevOps at a certain level it should be an obsession from much much earlier but it is different because I think in what we'd call the kind of like fearless warrior say one to three I just need to know I, I need to have a data strategy and then I start to evolve a a metric strategy if you like and then I start to learn about lean lag and then I start to learn about what's working and what's not and then I start to learn about productivity but by 10 20 30 million this needs to be if you're going to carry on growing at that kind of pace you need to know what the ramp up is you need to know the way to get very best out of people and you know lots of things tied in with that but I think RevOps is is absolutely critical to allow you to maintain growth and do it with a degree of confidence i said the one other thing I think is really important which I haven't really talked about is never losing sight of where the market is and where it's going and is it big enough for the next phase? So I think that's something else that's critical that says this is a market that's big enough for us to be a 500 million revenue business or actually this is a market frankly maybe 50 million and then we need to start thinking about new product lines or M&A or whatever it might be. I think that's something that needs a muscle that needs to be built at this stage as well. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I just absolutely love it. There's so many variables and factors that can influence the trajectory of these companies at that stage. It's just such a great problem to figure out how to solve, isn't it? Yeah, I can myself. Incredibly fortunate to be able to have these conversations over and over and over again and to learn from the founders. It goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. You know, I have been incredibly impressed by the founders that we're investing in and the caliber and the capability and the repeat execs that are coming in. So I learn more from them in every individual engagement than they learn from me. But in aggregate, it puts us in a very interesting position to be able to to say, hey, these are some of the things that do and don't seem to work. Totally. Well, Stephen, firstly, thank you for coming on the show and th- thanks for walking us through just a fraction of your uh, your experiences and wisdom in, in this space. I think it's been super insightful to get someone's perspective who has visibility across so many companies that are, are going through this phase of growth. And I know that for our listeners out there, there there's so many gold nuggets for them to take on board there. Uh, I can almost visualize a number of chief revenue officers kind of shuffling their pencils in the background <laughs> and dropping a Slack message to their revenue ops leader as they listen to this I, I hope so it's been nice of you to get me on here thanks so much for joining steven and then the, you know the fo- final ask if i may i mean if we, we have founders we have revenue leaders who listen to the show if they have follow-up questions or they'd like to learn more i mean w- what's the best way for them to do that probably linkedin you know they can find me on linkedin obviously they can find me on the notion website i'm more than happy to answer questions from people just drop me a message on linkedin and I'll, I'll undoubtedly respond steven thanks so much for coming on the show and look forward to catching up soon thanks matt
0: by uncovering blind spots in performance, motivation, and skills, UHubs helps busy sales leaders at top SaaS companies to optimise their sales enablement so they can develop their reps and grow revenue. The UHubs Pulse platform visualises each team's development needs, personalized upskilling, and provides data-driven coaching recommendations. These save sales managers 40 plus hours per quarter and help reps to ramp up 30% faster. Supercharge your sales team by booking a demo today.